and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each month we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. In this episode, we're chatting to Dr. Emily Fairfax, eco-hydrologist, science storyteller, and we're very pleased to report, top beaver enthusiast. Hello, Sophie. Eva, hello. How are you doing? Today of all days. Very good, but a little bit fried because it's a very exciting day in the beaver world. It is. Well, go on then. Spill the goss. What's going on? Well, we've been um, back to back with journalist inquiries this morning because we've got some brilliant beaver news coming out this week about the potential for some some actual English beaver policy and their status as a protected species in in England. And it's, it's what we've been all working towards. It has, yeah. I mean, actual beaver policy is, listeners, very, very exciting because, yes, beavers are a native mammal, but they haven't really, they sort of lost their native status, didn't they, when they went extinct 400 years ago. So to have that re recognized back in policy and potentially really exciting, lots of beavers and, and rivers and everything uh, is very, very encouraging. Yeah. So we're very excited. It is. It's really exciting. There's still a long way to go as we work out exactly what that looks like, but it's a huge step forward for, for beavers in Britain. So that's the main really thing is. and it's really welcome. Yeah. So watch this space for more beaver-related policy and excitable <laughs> comms from us. <laughs> anyway, Eva, I heard that you were festivaling this past weekend. Would you care to enlighten, please? Yeah, I was. I was. I had the huge pleasure of being at Green Man Festival um, over in Wales with the right. usual bunch of nutters in tents. And it was so Is that cool. how you describe yourself? <laughs> it is now. Eva Bishop, a.k.a. Nutter in a Tent. <laughs> That's definitely what I was this weekend. <laughs> well, but, good um, times. I'd like to put a quick shout out out there for any listener who Ooh. hasn't come across the Flying Seagull Project. Literally a oh. bunch of clowns that will make you smile and are doing amazing things for child happiness around the world, particularly in places like refugee camps. Amazing. I came away extremely inspired and touched by what they do, and I would love to share that with everyone. So look them up. Well, I mean, I will, because I'm in- incredibly intrigued by a uh, seagull slash clown. Is that the image that we're meant to, <laughs> to think of? Project, project name, just, yeah, you're project diverting. Name, you're seagull, diverting. actual clown. We're, we, digress. we digress. How are your summer holes going? Yeah, they're going well, thanks. Lots of, um, just lots of time with the family and Devon, to be honest. Um, yeah, I've got a flat, uh, flat tyre on my bike, which is a bit annoying. It happens. But, um, it happens, yeah. Anyway. I'm surprised you're reporting um, that as news, actually. I mean, isn't that part of the course? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a, I, I procrastinate, it's still flat as we speak. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on then. I have a feeling I need to redeem myself after losing the fact off to a growling beaver last time. Yeah, you've got you've got some ground I did to have make high up. Hopes. I do. So I will kick off and you can swoop in and try and redeem yourself next. So my fact is that lodges 
inside the beaver lodge they have a couple of different areas which i believe are on different layers as well and we can clarify this point later one is where they kind of hang out and dry off and this can be a bit damp the second is for sleeping and it's like drier area oh. so they've got like rooms within their house okay so they have a changing room after swimming <laughs> yeah. and then they have a chill out room for sleeping love yeah. it with posters all over their walls yeah <laughs> Of one direction. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe not. Maybe that's just me. Oh my God. Now we're really digressing. <laughs> Come on, sweep in with your fact. Okay. Quick. Here is my fact. Related to the area of the lodge, I'm going to zoom out to the river and willow trees in particular. So it's a tenuous beaver link, but a willow tree is one of their favorite foods. So here we go. Willow trees, lovely wind in the willow type trees, are able to reproduce without any type of fertilization taking place at all. So normally trees and plants, they have a sort of fertilization process, but not willow trees. They can recreate, no, they can create genetic copies or clones of the parent plant when fallen branches fall to the ground and then take root near water. So let's say near a beaver pond, for example. This is called vegetative reproduction and they can do it upside down. So there we go. There she is swooping in with a very tenuous link to beaver facts. <laughs> so once they've reproduced by themselves, upside down, a beaver can come in and have a nibble. That's I've actually fact. got some willow vegetatively reproducing in my greenhouse at the moment. Well, there, there you, you are. Little pot, upside down. Little pot of water, a couple of sticks. Lovely. Anyway. Well done. Congrats. I like it. Nice one. I thought you were going to go straight for the best thing about willow and the, um, you know, castorium oh, and save what it, it contains uh, uh, save it that's, ne- save that's, it. that's next next month i'm gonna have you save it okay um anyway uh eva let's park beaver related stuff for a sec because what on earth has been going on with the weather and the climate lately because unless you've been hiding under a rock many parts of the world have been heating up a little too much for our liking this summer oh my god yeah it's really really getting serious now so the climate emergency is right here bang parts of the world have literally been on fire greece siberia which is frozen California, Scandinavia, parts of Canada, even the ocean was on fire in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. I mean, proper global emergency. And it I think it made the front page of the news for about a day and then it was gone with some other um, rubbish. And um, yeah, mm. so, and of course, these heat-related deaths of people and wildlife and the loss of homes, the loss of habitat, they're on such vast numbers. It's frightening because this takes years to replace, you know, irreplaceable in some, in, in the cases mm. of deaths. And it's it's really tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, safe to say it has been a year of extremes and it's totally natural if you've been feeling overwhelmed by all of this. And a cheeky plug, if you are feeling overwhelmed and you feel a little bit eco-anxious and you're not really sure what to do about it, why don't you take a listen to episode four of season one of the Lodgecast, where we chat to Dr. Katrina Meller, who's a specialist psychiatrist in eco-anxiety. And that might be a little bit of a hug, maybe. Um, Hmm. during this time and it's hard to think straight isn't it you know when we see a fire causing a desperate situation across um, places that we know places perhaps we've been on holiday like Italy and Greece and it just feels a little bit too much out of control well it is I mean it's so much bigger than human control and and yet we've created all this and of course the latest report from the IPCC which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released in August Um, highlighted this undeniable impact and link that humans have had on destabilizing our uh, planet's climate. And it's, you know, they they almost sort of said, yes, we've been predicting this for ages, and it's at the extreme end. So we really, Mm. really need to act. 
Mm, we do. I mean, some scientists are saying that we're seeing effects now that were predicted to happen 80 to 100 years in the future. Exactly. So it is a very real situation. But the IPCC provided a glimmer of hope and stated that we still have time to avoid irreversible damage to our planet. So with that in mind, and looking at wildfire events in particular, what if there was a way that we could reduce these incidents? Well, there's a thought indeed. We have spoken in previous episodes about how beavers can help mitigate drought and wildfire. And often we've looked at other countries in this regard, but who who knows, it could be relevant to Britain as well very soon. So let's explore it in a little bit more detail. So when beavers build their dams, what happens is water builds up behind it and is stored and spread into the landscape creating effectively a series of sponges down their beavery wetlands, slowing the flow of water and really storing that water and making it really, really wet. So Mm. when the fire comes along, um, the beaver wetland is like a sanctuary from the wildfire. And we've seen photos, aerial footage after a wildfire of sort of blackened landscape with this green oasis in the middle, which is the beaver wetland. Absolutely Mm. incredible. Mm, it is it is an amazing thing to see and and if you haven't seen a photo like this I really encourage you to to google it and just have a look because it's so sort of eye-opening and poignant and I love how you've used the image of a sponge and oasis because you know oasis and plants Mm. for example it's just this kind of green wedge of that that gives a life to a plant for a long period of time and that's exactly what a beaver wetland does and so Yes, the UK hasn't suffered from many massive wildfire events, you know, if we're comparing it to, say, California and parts of other other mm. parts of North America. But it's a really, really key thing to be thinking about if these instances of wildfire and heat waves are going to be increasing, which science tells us they will. Mm. So why don't we look to beavers as a really effective, low-cost mitigation strategy to help us, I don't know, you know, it armour ourselves and our and our landscape against the effects of climate change. That's it. And once again, as we always say, they're not a silver bullet. They're not going to solve all the fire and the drought problems, but mm. they can be an important um, piece of the jigsaw and a, an important nature-based solution. And, and critically, what we're sort of saying is that it doesn't just store a little pool of water behind the dam. It soaks in Gallons. and spreads. It yeah. spreads across the adjacent landscape into farmland. Yeah. And that's really... That's exactly where some of the conflict arises, but it's the huge potential when you're talking about climate and ecological resilience. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's that word resilience, I think, that's really key that is hopefully going to be a bit of a theme for today's episode. Talking of which, today we're absolutely thrilled to welcome our friend Dr. Emily Fairfax to the Lodgecast. Now, if you've been following the antics of Beaver Trust for a while, that name might ring a bell. Because as well as being an assistant professor and science communicator, Emily has also spent some of her time this year flexing her artistic muscles and creating the most amazing stop-motion beaver animation explaining just this, how beaver wetlands can be fire breaks. Yes, she brilliantly combined her creative storytelling skills and her scientific knowledge with a whole load of coloured felt and a little beaver in the middle and made a video showing just how beaver wetlands um, can help protect an environment for wildfires and it's such a useful tool we've used it with schools with um, all sorts of audiences and I think she still gets huge acclaim for it globally so we are mm. delighted that she's here today and we are very keen to speak to her more about it 
Okay, so dialing in all the way from California in the United States, Emily, thank you so much for negotiating time zones and for chatting to us today. And welcome to the Lodgecast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, thanks for joining us. We're so thrilled and, to have um, you. Listeners, for your benefit, Emily is calling and it's about 7.30 in the morning in California and she's holding a big mug with a beaver on it. So she's very on brand. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even my only beaver mug, to be honest. Oh, hello. Okay. One of a collection. We will we will post a collection of the picture of the beaver mug collection to accompany <laughs> we will. the uh, logic episode. Okay, so first of all, before we get into it, we would like you to judge this month's famous fact off. So we've already shared our facts with you. So which do you think is cooler? Is it the fact that you can stick a piece of willow into the ground and it can reproduce by itself and can do so upside down? Or is it the fact that a beaver lodge has multiple rooms, has a changing room and a sleeping room, and is just quite cool? That's a tough one. I mean, both of the facts are really great facts. And Thank you. both are definitely beaver facts. I cool. am, I'm going to have to go with the willow because I've heard it less. <gasps> oh my gosh. And so it's a much more new fact uh, for a lot Amazing. of people. Amazing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Look I'm at absolutely that. delighted. Blew the fact absolutely world wide delighted. open. Thank you, Emily. I was not expecting oh, that, I have to say. Well chosen. Eva was proper slagging <laughs> off my facts behind the scenes, listeners. <laughs> it's only because it wasn't specifically about beavers, oh. but it is an excellent fact. Okay. Um, all things plant. You know I'm a fan. So, well won, well won. Um, let's get down to beavery stuff. What is your favourite beaver experience been? We have seen all sorts of amazing pictures of you in cr- by huge dams and in crazy ponds and up to your neck in beaver-related <laughs> wetland water. And what have you? What's the best thing you've ever done to do with beavers in, in all your? vast travels. I think one of the most fun things was when I was very first looking for field sites to study in Colorado and I had heard a rumor that there was a beaver dam at like mile 14 up left hand canyon. So I was like okay I'm gonna go. so American right now. It doesn't like let me just drop some more American (laughs) units in there for you. Um, It's like I'm going up to mile 14 in left hand canyon and they're like you can see it from the road like you'll be able to find it. So I'm looking I'm looking I'm like I haven't seen any beaver dams in the area recently. I didn't know what to expect. And then I finally get to mile 14 and I look and it's that gigantic one. It's the one that's like 10 feet tall. And my first oh, thought was like, goodness. oh my gosh, the beavers build really differently here because I was like, <laughs> I've never seen one so big. I'd seen them in like Minnesota and in other places where they're smaller, but that was huge. And I went down to see it and it was truly an incredible beaver dam. They do not all build that way. It was uniquely large. Please <laughs> note. <laughs> but it yeah, was, yeah. it was, it blew my mind. I thought I was looking for like a little beaver dam and it was not a little beaver dam. That's so cool, isn't it? I just can't even imagine it. it. On the road. Yeah. Boom. That's yeah. insane. I wonder how the beavers, like, honestly, how do they fix that anymore? It's so huge. Mm. Like, it's got to be such a burden on them. They're like, wow, They've I regret building up. this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and. And so how deep is it behind it? That's the cool part. It's not actually that deep behind it. It's maybe four or five feet because it's been, there's some more American units. It's like a (laughs) meter and a half. Um, (laughs) It's it's been. No, we can work with feet. (laughs) Um, It's been there for so long that so much sediment has been piling up behind it. Um, I think Mm. they've been building it taller and taller to keep up with the sediment. So it's just a really high sediment load system. And how old do you think it is? I can see it in satellite images at least back to 2013. 
And what? before then, it could have been there, but smaller. There was a lot more uh, tree cover, so it's hard to say. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. And have you, um, in your exploration, ever disappeared without realizing how deep it was? You know, like you <laughs> beaver pothole. I've definitely been wading through beaver ponds and talking um, to people I'm with and taking a step and then gone from like knee deep to neck deep very quickly. Amazing. That's always a great You've been time. really nonchalant about it. Just like, oh, uh, and, uh, oh. Yeah, like, and did you know happened? that beavers also dredge the bottom of their ponds and there can be these really deep spots? Like, what a cool example of that. I just stepped into one <laughs> here's one I did earlier that's amazing nice. um Emily you are an eco-hydrologist which is something that just sounds like it rolls off the tongue but when I first heard it it's just so fascinating and something I never heard about when I was kind of at school or at university could you tell us what exactly that means and and what's your role really Mm-hmm. I also hadn't heard the term until I was well into the field, so it's not like it's a super well-known okay. one. Um, eco-hydrology, it's just within hydrology or the study of water, eco-hydrologists focus a lot on how that water is interacting with living systems. So mm-hmm. there's eco-hydrologists that are all about plants and water. There's eco-hydrologists that are all about animals and water um, or soil microbes and water. And what I do as an eco-hydrologist is kind of water plus plants plus animal because I see like I'm studying beavers and their impacts on a landscape, but the actual things that I'm measuring is almost always the plants in the landscape, using them as a proxy Hmm. for the health of a system um, or how it's withstanding droughts and things like that. And then the plants are only green because of the water. And so it's like, if you follow like the train Mm -hmm. of clues all the way back to water, that's sort of my research thread. And that's what I do as an eco-hydrologist. That is very, very cool. It's absolutely fascinating as well. I'm, one of the things that I'm really into at the moment is the water cycle generally and how climate change has affected that and therefore a little bit to do with how you know beavers interact with that. So I think it's a fascinating area. But one of the wonderful things I think about you and having you on this program is that it's fantastic to be able to call on a woman within our industry for panel events. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, great to see you at the top of the field. How did you get into this line of research in the first place? <laughs> Stubbornly. <laughs> I, yes. <laughs> I wanted to, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college and I was working as a systems engineer and I oh, wow. wasn't super into that job. I wanted to be outside more. I wanted to study something that was more environmental focused instead of like in a lab space working on metals focused. Fall in a few more holes. Yeah. In your I, was like, I should fall into holes in my job. That seems like a real job. <laughs> um, and so I was watching a documentary called Leave It to Beavers by PBS And it was all about beavers and I was like feeling down on my career choice. And then in this documentary, I actually saw them profile these hydrologists and these beaver scientists. And so many of them were women, which was really cool. No way. Um, Amazing. But they also highlighted like there's so much we don't know about beavers and the way they change the landscape. And I had no idea. I thought beavers were like solved. Um, I I didn't know anybody who studied anything like that. And it made it really clear that that was not the case. Beavers were not solved. And so I quit my job and went to grad school to study beavers. And then I stuck with it and like all beavers all day and I'm still on that track and it's great and I haven't turned back. And I have found that at least in the research community I have within beavers specifically, it is so welcoming and kind and Hmm. chill. And it's refreshing because that's not always the case in science, especially it can be a lot of scientific fields can be pretty hostile um, but I found the beaver community is just awesome. And so it was very encouraging and helped me stick with it. 
That's really cool to hear, isn't it? That's amazing. I mean... What a lovely place to to land. Yeah. So in the UK, especially, Emily, there's a a tiny percentage of um, women who are academics go on to become professors and associate professors and things. What are, you kind of alluded to it just now, but what are the barriers to female academics, you know, getting to the top of their game there and being real influencers, not only in, um, so near where they live and in their country, but around the world? Why is it so difficult for, for women to get to that top? Um, I mean, it's difficult. The difficulties start very early on, like in elementary school when you're a little kid, like a lot of women are shuttled towards being something else that's not a scientist because math is for boys and engineering's for boys. And mm. starting early, that creates a division where if you do, you know, take a lot of math classes or physics classes, you start to see your classes do become uh, primarily male and you will become more and more alone in those classes. And it's the same with um, pretty much any marginalized identity. The farther away you get from your community, the harder it is to keep propping yourself up because you don't have people you can turn to and be like, oh, you're like me, you're in this, we're in this together. And mm-hmm. then if you find yourself like on a campus and you're the only female professor or hmm. you know the only woman in your field giving a talk about this topic, then it's like, who do you go talk to about how great that was that you were the only woman in your field? Like your community isn't necessarily there. And so that's mm-hmm. a sort of cultural barrier that persists. But then there's also more explicit barriers where people are still gatekeeping, especially in academia. There's issues with um, big egos that cannot be fired and cannot be corrected. And they Hmm. just they can create really toxic workplaces. And for a lot of women, they make what I think is a smart but sad choice, which is like, I'm not going to work in that environment. I'm going to work somewhere else. It's not worth my time to be harassed every single day. I'm going to go follow a different path and do my cool science away from like that person or that thing. And hmm. then the difficulty of like switching from one university to another comes into play. And that's where I do think a lot of women leave um, academia. Also, imagine having kids in academia. Not sure. easy, right? Um, that's a lot of extra work on top of an already extremely high workload job. Yeah, that is um, enlightening, I think, for many who aren't in academia. Thank mm. you for that view. Mm. It's really interesting. My, my only experience of that is doing physics A-level. That's the only mm. girl in the class. <laughs> I've just got a quick question, actually. You mentioned your, um, uh, that you have, your previous role was as a systems engineer. Do you identify with the beaver as an ecosystem engineer, having had an engineering background? Or am I just being facetious <laughs> no I, I definitely think I identify with beavers a lot just because they work really hard and in all of my jobs I feel like I've worked really hard um the engineering I have a lot of respect for beavers because having been an mm. engineer that did material science basically like I can't build a beaver dam it'd be terrible <laughs> it'd be so bad if, have huh? you tried <laughs> just like teeny little ones for like a scale model in a demo and nice. it comes out so bad um interesting they build them so fast and so well and if you Mm. were to ask me as an engineer come up with a solution to slow down the water and irrigate the landscape and develop a super biodiverse habitat and you have to meet all these parameters and you have to do it for free i would be like this is impossible i cannot do this like i can maybe meet one of those parameters but not all of them and then the beaver Mm. walks in and it's just like oh i've been doing this for seven million years i got it (laughs) 
Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And so you have persisted and um, braved all those barriers that you described where they've cropped up for you. Where are you now? What's your current research look like on beavers? Right now, I am really digging in on the beavers and wildfire topic. Um, I published my study, Smokey the Beaver, which is all about can they make fire refugia? Uh, and the answer was mm. yes, um, which is great news. But there's still so many more questions. Like how many yeah. beavers do you need to create X amount of acres preserved? Does this happen always? Are there certain conditions where it's less likely? Are there certain conditions where it's more likely? And so I feel like all that study really did was open the door to a room sure. full of new questions, um, which is great for me as a scientist. I'll never run out. Um, <laughs> but it's also like, wow, we need even more scientists working on these questions because it's timely and there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it certainly is timely, yeah. And um, so how, maybe if we backtrack a little bit, how do beavers fit into the wildfire solution? Because obviously this summer we've seen an unbelievable scale of wildfire across the world, not just in the States. Um, and so we've mentioned it briefly in the content of this episode but perhaps you could explain that study and and the implications of it for for science and climate change yeah it all starts with droughts and dry periods and so when a beaver moves into a landscape and it builds its dam that's going to create a pond upstream of it and then from that pond it digs these canals out into the landscape and those canals are like little water highways so the beaver can swim in them the beaver can float logs around in them it's all about the beaver's safety that's why it's building but then the hydrology consequence of all of that is that water is being slowed down in that landscape. It's not stopped. It's just slowed down and spread way out. So instead of it just being a little tiny stream where the water goes screaming through, you've got this sort of giant speed bump that slows the water down and smears it out over a much larger area. And that's pretty much the same thing as irrigating the landscape. So you're just dripping water into it constantly. And so then if you cut off precipitation, the drought happens... Everything that needs precipitation and can't reach water is going to start to turn really withered and crinkly and dry and easy to burn. But in these beaver dammed landscapes, it's being watered by the beavers and by the beaver pond. And so it stays green and it stays lush. And then any ignition event that you have, if it's a lightning strike, if it's a match, a campfire, a car misfiring, whatever, it's not going to be easy for that to burn the wet fuels. Like you don't start a fire with wet sticks. It's not smart. Um, it's not that the beavers are out there, you know, thinking about fire and thinking, oh, if mm. I do all this, it's going to make a fireproof landscape. They're just trying to make yeah. themselves their swampy home. But the consequence is like, it's not energetically favorable to burn wet stuff. And the fire is just a physics problem. It's just going to try to burn whatever's easiest. And when it gets mm. up to that beaver ponded area, it's not easy. And so it's going to try to go around or if there's enough of it, it can be sort of routed or paused as it tries to either burn through that, which may or may not be possible, or hop over it with a flying ember. But the beavers just trying to make themselves like a swamp castle have made a whole patch of the <laughs> landscape that won't burn. So we've seen those lovely aerial shots of the oasis, the beaver wetland in the middle. Has a wildfire ever actually stopped at a large beaver and not, and not passed it? Have you ever seen that happen? I saw that at one point in my Smokey the Beaver study, just on one creek, and okay. I, it was the most beaver damming I've ever seen in one place. It was incredible. <laughs> it was almost a kilometer wide and just kilometers downslope. Wow. A huge, huge beaver complex. And it was a big fire, and it approached it, and it, it didn't get over it. 
I think it's That's amazing. possible in more scenarios than that, but it's going to be really dependent on the weather because the sogginess and the wetness, like that's an on-ground process. And one of the ways that fires spread really easy is by spitting their embers and throwing those in the wind. And so if it's really mm. windy, I mean, an ember can fly a really far distance. Mm, um, yeah. But if you've got like a little sort of lower intensity or more sort of ground-hugging burn, then I think it's a higher likelihood that a beaver pond would actually stop it rather than just create a patch. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. We actually... Um, we were mentioning your stop motion animation earlier, which we are huge fans of at Beaver Trust Mega and fans. use very regularly. <laughs> um, we'd love to hear a little bit about why you did that in the first place. I mean, obviously, you've got passion for this subject, um, but have you? Was there an original need and an audience that needed that, or is it just for the love of it? Or have you, are you a really creative person as well? And 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 how often do you still use it? Um, the need was I was looking for jobs, and I was giving my elevator pitch over and over and over again and just telling people like this is what I study this is what I do and it was a pretty new thing to be talking about and so people were trying to like picture it while I'm talking and I just always wanted to show them instead of talk about it and I didn't want to spend so long like putting my hands in the air being like and then the fire moves like this around the beaver pond and like <laughs> I was I was losing them and so I was like I can't just keep talking about this I need a visual and I thought, well, like diagrams are boring. Everybody has a diagram. So True story. what about a stop motion? <laughs> and I just went with it. And it's a good thing I didn't pause and stop to think like, how much effort is this? Is it worth it? Because it was a good amount of effort. Um, how long did it take? If you count the time I spent thinking about how to do it, a long time. <laughs> if you just count the filming time, it was about four hours, um, which seems not wow. that long. Okay. But it's a 45-second video. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah, not yeah. A, that's not a great return rate on my time. Um, but it was actually super fun to make, and um, I'd never made a stop motion before. I just used an app on my phone and like junk I had around my house to do it. And then after I like shared it with people, I realized very quickly, like, oh, this is, this is popular and that's good and bad. A little scary. Um, but it's been by far the best networking tool I've ever made people. It's such an easy conversation starter. Mm. And it's also something where people can immediately like understand the core of my research. So they feel confident sure. asking me questions yeah. or asking me more. And there's no awkward, like, so am I right in my understanding of what you do? Like, yeah, Th that felt makes it very clear what I do. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because it's very rare for um, scientific research to have an obvious application, because sometimes a lot of research is so focused on one process that the real world application is quite hard to grasp I think for the average person whereas I think as you've shown with your video and then also just your normal your kind of everyday science communication your research has such a real world application that's so timely I mean does that motivate you to pursue and answer these further questions that you spoke about um does it kind of I don't know, does it overwhelm you at times as to how kind of crucial your research is at the moment? Tell us a bit more about that. It's definitely, I want to stay very focused on the applicable side of my science. It's also mm. really hit home for me that I can't do the really standard academic path of do a study, publish it, and then ignore it, let it be what it is. And then do another study, publish it, ignore it, let it be what it is. I 
did my study on Smokey the Beaver and I've spent the last year just like talking about it with people and doing workshops on it and explaining it and making sure everybody knows and understands it because it is applied science and that's why I did that study. I didn't want to just do some research and then let it go Mm. die in the ivory tower. I wanted it to get into the hands of land managers who could actually do something with it. Like I don't personally go handle beavers or do any kind of on-ground sort of restoration work, but my Mm. research definitely helps inform that. And so for me, it sort of expanded the research process from like develop a hypothesis, test it, publish it at the end. Now it's Mm. those steps, then talk to everybody about it and make sure everybody understands it and make outreach materials about it, which is great. Um, In academia, that's something I did have to like stand up for and say like, this is a valuable use of my time. This is part of my research. I don't need to jump straight into publishing the next three papers. Like this one still has some stuff that I need to wring out of it for people. Mm. Related to this, something that I'd love you to clarify as a beaver scientist, really, for our listeners, to what extent can we apply research on North American beavers to European, Eurasian beavers and the situations? Obviously, they're different contexts to a degree and they're different species technically. But in your opinion, um, we get a lot of criticism of sort of saying there's research around the world about beavers, but there isn't in Britain. Obviously, there's huge amounts of research in Britain as well. But some of the stuff that we talk about, people tend to say, oh, that can't apply here because it's not the same. You know, what what do you, what would you, how would you answer that question? I think it depends on what the research specifically is. So I definitely study beavers and study what they do on the landscape, but almost none of my research is actually about the beaver itself. It's all about Mm -hmm. what it's done. And so it's built a dam, it's dug a canal, it's ponded water. And so if you have a beaver that builds a dam, digs a canal, ponds water, then we are studying the same system. We are studying a pond with canals radiating out from it. If you're talking beaver biology and it's like, well, this beaver prefers to chew on aspen and willow and that beaver prefers to chew on cottonwood, that could be more species and like regionally specific. But I mean, that's one of the great things about sticking with the physical science side of it is like, I can take my steps all the way back from the beaver and say, you know, honestly, it doesn't even matter what the beaver is. If it's the biggest beaver that ever lived, if it's a hundred tiny beavers, I don't care. Hmm. What I care about is what does the landscape look like? And the impact and the landscape. Yeah. yeah, that's really helpful, actually. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, because often we're, conservation as a, as a movement, I guess, is criticised for a speciesist approach. And often we have to be careful as beaver trusts that we, you know, we zoom out and talk about the landscape and the habitat and how everything functions all together. So it's really interesting that that's the approach you take with your research too. And I guess it's um, a comfort to know that, that we have people like you helping to solve these enormous problems that we've got on our horizon <laughs> at the moment with our climate. Um, and just before we wrap up, what is next for you in your research? What are you working on at the moment? Um, right now, the question I'm digging into is, well, in the Western United States, at least probably elsewhere in the world, we're seeing a lot more extreme fire behavior. And so the fires aren't acting like fires have acted Hmm. for most of history. They're acting kind of new. They're like, we're hearing words like it's an explosive fire or the fire makes a run overnight and it travels four or five, six miles. It's just wow. absolutely like way out of the normal range of fire behavior. And what I want to know is in those extreme, extreme conditions, do these beaver-created refugia persist? Like, are they strong enough for that? Because everything has an end limit. Like at some point, 
you can't pour lava on a beaver pond and it'll be okay. Like that's too much heat. That's too much force. Um, you can have a wildfire get around it, but like at what point does the wildfire become too intense? And so I'm looking at some of the biggest, nastiest, gnarliest fires from the last couple of years and trying to see, you know, are the beavers still maintaining these refugia always, sometimes in certain circumstances, in all circumstances? Mm. And like, why? When when will they hit that upper limit? Because when yeah. you think about it from a like restoration and applied science side of things, like that's the time window we have. And if all fires mm. suddenly become these super explosive fires, then we've sort of missed that restoration window. Um, I, I have not found the end member yet. Um, so far in my data, it's not done, but I am seeing positive results. It's looking pretty good overall. Uh, but then again, every year it's a new explosive fire. I mean, mm, wow. we'll see what happens. Do, do beavers give you hope? They, they sure give you cause do. For hope against climate change. It's yeah. climate change sucks. There is so much like grief <laughs> well and said. stress thinking about it. <laughs> like you want to think about how great it is. You're like, oh, where am I going to live? You know, in 20 years, and then you have to stop and think. Like, well, is it going to be burning? Is it going to be flooding? Is it going like, yeah. ugh, mm. what a terrible thing to think about. But at least with beavers, it's I feel hopeful because they're everywhere at least in North America, um, and they have potential to be everywhere uh, throughout Eurasia where they used to be. And they do all of this work, and they've been doing it, and they Mm. aren't being sort of thwarted by climate change. They're doing it in spite of climate change. And so we have these budgets and these plans that we have for climate change, and if we let the beavers do what beavers do and restore streams and restore rivers, then those dollars that we have can be redirected onto other projects and we'll get more accomplished if we partner with the beavers. Mm. And so that gives me hope because it's a big problem and we need as many hands and paws on it as possible. Absolutely. What a wonderful note to end on. I think totally. that beavery climate hope and the way you phrased that was absolutely perfect. In spite so, of um, climate change, that needs to be on a t-shirt yeah. or something. Or on a mug. Partner with the beavers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Emily, thank you so, so much for your time this morning. Um, it's been wonderful to hear and I think a huge cause to follow your work and, and wish you well with that research yeah, do, because do. it's really important stuff. Thank, yeah, thank you, you so much. It was great talking to you guys. Wow, wow, wow. She's such a legend. I'm so glad we got her on the Lodgecast. Same. And I hope you guys, listeners, really enjoyed that and will follow Emily's work. Totally. That's just She's so topical awesome. and so exciting. Yeah. yeah. She, oh, she really is. No, definitely follow her work. Follow her videos. Follow her stop motion animations. We just heard that there's more in the pipeline. So eyes peeled for that. Yeah. And, you uh, heard it here first. <laughs> Now, we've got one last thing to do in this episode that you may be predicting already because it's time for our listener adored segment, the quiz. And it's Eva's turn to put my knowledge to the test. I'm really excited about this one. I've got to be honest. I've actually put quite a lot of thought into this quiz and it is very topical for this. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Unnecessary dig. Uh, We all know it. Didn't need to say it. Um, I won the fact off. quiz... I'm off dying out on that all uh, (laughs) down on that chestnut one day. Exactly. (laughs) All right, pipe down. So this quiz is topical for autumn. I am going to test your knowledge on COP26 goals. Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Say oh dear. Brilliant. Love COP26. Hit me. This is so important. We've got to get COP26 right. So everyone needs to know about this. Right. The very first goal Mm. of COP26 is to secure net zero by when? 2015. In order to... Oh. I haven't even given you your options Sorry, yet. Sorry, keen. 
in order to keep one and a half degrees in within reach. Yeah. Uh, 2050. I'm just going to cut to the chase. You're absolutely right. Thank you. <laughs> it's indeed 2050. No need for multiple choice there. I'm glad you're all over this. Yeah, love it. Um, that does include accelerating the phase out of coal, curtailing deforestation, speeding up the switch to electric vehicles, and encouraging investment in renewables. What a to-do list. Let's do this, team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Question two. Goal number two is to urgently adapt to protect Spit it out. Protect. <laughs> God, I'm so excited about this stuff. <laughs> Protect communities and natural habitats. Really, really important. Which of these is not specified within that action plan? Early warning systems and increased flood defences. Improved resilience in agriculture. An adaptation communication to share best, best practice. Or a UN migration agreement to ensure those displaced find shelter elsewhere. Which of those is not part of goal Interesting. Two? My gut tells me that it's the early warning systems one. It is, in fact, not included to have a migration agreement to ensure those displaced find oh. shelter. I made that well, one up, but well, I think they should consider that it. That sounds totally legit. <laughs> yeah. Are you listening, COP26 organisers? Probably not. But you should, because the podcast <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> Question three. Mobilising finance. Ah, snore. My (laughs) favourite. How much money, or inverted commas, climate finance, have developed countries promised to mobilise each year, each year, to help deliver the goals? Is it A, $100 billion? Is it B, $500 billion? Or is it C, $1 trillion? Crikey. I'm going to go with the comfortable... 100 billion is the correct answer it's not going to be anywhere near enough (laughs) um but good luck and let's hope they deliver it uh but but then no there is a bonus question number four hello yes right do you think any of this is likely to happen (sighs) do you want my opinion or uh beaver trust messaging (laughs) sophie pavel opinion I uh, think it will happen eventually. Let's say that. That's a nice middle of the road answer with a little bit of hope. Yeah. A really unsatisfying. I know. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed ah. today's quiz. Um, and if Thanks you're not much. all over it already, go and uh, look up the COP26 goals and get involved because this is your planet and your future too. Enough you campaigning. Um, so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Lodgecast we would like to say a huge thank you to Emily for joining us today and for of course illuminating the issues of wildfires that are rampaging around the globe and the role of our beloved rodents in this part um, of tackling the climate crisis and thank you to you our listeners for downloading the Lodgecast and while you're here please make sure that you've subscribed to the podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming monthly episodes we've got some absolute crackers in the pipeline I know they say that I say that every time but we do (laughs) (laughs) and of course leave us a lovely review it really helps us reach new audiences and to grow the podcast so that we can keep bringing you those brilliant guests And while we're at it, why don't you also share the podcast with a friend or two or 10 who might be interested in beavers or nature restoration or maybe just a laugh. (laughs) For more from us, you can also visit our website, beavertrust.org, to read our blogs and to sign up for our newsletter. And as always, you can find Beaver Trust on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Beaver Trust. See you next month. 
This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by the wonderful Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust. 